I am reading Wilfred Bion from Attention and Interpretation, Chapter 6. Publisher is Roman and Littlefield Publishers, and originally published in 1983 and 1970 by W.R. Bion, and published by Roman and Littlefield in 2004. Attention and Interpretation is the name of the book. I am reading chapter six. It is the chapter I opened up to. Chapter six, The Mystic and the Group. It seems absurd that a psychoanalyst should be unable to assess the quality of his work. In attempting an assessment, he has available popular repute, notoriously fickle and unreliable, and unsuited for use as a foundation for any judgment, anxiety, or a sense of satisfaction and well-being about a piece of work that appears to him to be well done. This last is probably as reliable a foundation as any, but is subject to doubt and misgiving. The only other person well-placed to have an opinion is the analysand. His opinion is likewise a matter for scrutiny. The friendly or hostile feelings revealed converge toward a point where there should be a wise and compassionate, though critical, judgment. Instead, there is an intuition. That truth, that's truth. Accept it. Such formulations are not regarded as scientifically adequate, and one craves something better. The craving cannot be satisfied unless it is recognized that standpoints such as religion, art, and science, as we understand them today, are as unsatisfactory as the formulations truth, beauty, God, or future life. The formulation is the end product of a transformation. All transformations are associated with a particular vertex. The psychoanalyst is faced at an early date in his own development and at an early stage in the development of psychoanalysis itself with problems that arise because no vertex at present recognized is adequate. It is as absurd to criticize a piece of psychoanalytic work on the ground that it is not scientific as it is to criticize it because it is not religious or not artistic. It is not any of these things. Its failure to be so is a criticism, but its success at being any of them would not remove the reproach. The critical formulation for which there is no substitute is that it is not psychoanalysis. It would seem that we are as far as ever from a positive result to the discussion. Psychoanalysis must be regard as a, regarded as a term binding a constant conjunction. Years must pass before we are before we understand what are conjoined and what the conjunction means. Can it be done in verbal terms? Are there any other terms? It has been said in criticism of psychoanalysis that it cannot be regarded as a science because it cannot be mathematized. Available mathematics do not provide the psychoanalyst with appropriate formulations. The same is true of available verbalizations, but this has been obscured because ordinary conversation has served fairly well for the analysands who have come for analysis hitherto. This situation has been altered by the advent of so-called severe cases on the one hand and by the needs of communication between psychoanalytic colleagues on the other. 
It is clear that a development is required that will help psychoanalysis in a manner analogous to that in which modern mathematics has helped the development of physics. In the meantime, we are thrown back on existing verbal, mathematical, and artistic formulations and the exceptional individuals capable of employing them. Genius has been said to be akin to madness. It would be more true to say that psychotic mechanisms require a genius to manipulate them in a matter adequate to promote growth or life, which is synonymous with growth. The group needs to preserve its coherence and identity. Efforts to do so are manifested in conventions, laws, culture, and language. It also needs the exceptional individual and therefore needs to make provision for the exceptional individual. This might be simple if exceptional individuals declared themselves in unexceptionable terms and if the nature of their impact on the group, its laws and conventions could be judged as life-giving or the reverse. The possibility of such discrimination is doubtful and, centuries after, it may still be debated whether an individual of this kind exerted a beneficial or deleterious effect. The same is true of ideas, furthermore. Groups are hostile or friendly, favorable or unfriendly to the development of the new person or idea. The exceptional individual may be variously described as a genius, a messiah, a mystic, and his following may be large or small. The negative group declares itself an enemy of promise in a manner that may not be discernible to ordinary individuals, but is apparently clear to the gifted individual who seeks an atmosphere more congenial to the exercise of his gifts. For convenience, I shall use the term mystic to describe these exceptional individuals. I include scientists, and Newton is the outstanding example of such a man. His mystical and religious preoccupations have been dismissed as an aberration when they should be considered as the matrix from which his mathematical form formulations evolved. The mystic may declare himself as revolutionary, or he may claim that his function is to fulfill the laws, conventions, and destiny of his group. It would be surprising if any true mystic were not regarded by the group as a mystical nihilist at some stage of his career and by a greater or less proportion of the group. It would be equally surprising if he were not in fact nihilistic to some group if, for no other reason than the nature of his contribution, is certain to be destructive of the laws, conventions, culture, and therefore coherence of a group within the group, if not of the whole group. In this, it is evident that the character of the group, which I do not discuss, cannot be excluded from the facts of the evolution of a mystic in a group. The disruptive force of the mystical nihilist, or of the mystic whose impact on a particular group is of a disruptive or nihilist character, extends to and depends on the language of achievement, be it expressed in action, speech, writing, or aesthetic. Usually, the spread of the disruptive force is limited by the vehicle of communication. The phenomena of destruction remain the same, but reception of their message varies, often being restricted to relatively few. Melanie Klein writes of symbol formation as if it were a particular function that could disintegrate or be disordered and give rise to deep disturbance in a personality. There are realizations that co correspond to this theory 
but I think the area of disturbance should be regarded as greater than her theory implies. For example, the psychotic patient does not always behave, behave as if he is incapable of symbol formation. Indeed, he often talks or behaves as if he is convinced that certain actions, which to me are innocent of any symbolic significance, are obviously symbolic. They mean, apparently obviously, some message which is of personal and particularly particular concern to him. This meaning is quite different from the meaning one assumes to lie behind a constant conjunction that is public and not private to one individual. The former is, and appears to belong to, a private communication by God or devil or fate. When the psychotic symbol is met with in practice, its significance seems to be less than it symbolizes, less that it symbolizes something, and more that it indicates the patient is in private rapport with a deity or demon. The symbol, as it is usually understood, represents a conjunction, which is recognized by a group to be constant. As encountered in psychosis, it represents a conjunction between a patient and his deity, which the patient feels to be constant. The symbol can be an attempt of the personality to use its experience to formulate a theory, which may then be used when the appropriate realization presents itself, or an attempt to use an external event, e.g. a meeting with an acquaintance, to yield an interpretation as if it were a symbol. Thus, an, an adverse circumstance can be used as a symbol, not sign, of God's wrath, or past experiences can be represented by symbols whose genetic base is in their sensuous background. The emotional experience is thus made manageable by being symbolized, whether it is in origin felt to be a response to a painful external stimulus, or whether the external experience is felt to be the confirmation of a painful internal psychic experience. The inescapable bestiality of the human animal, animal is it is the quality from which our cherished and admired characteristics spring. Man is a political animal means that he has the mental counterpart of the physical characteristics of a herd animal. As psychoanalysts, we are concerned with the mental counterpart of such physical characteristics as can be discerned in the individual when in semi-isolation from his group but closely involved in a situation likely to stimulate his pair characteristics. Birth, dependence, pairing, and warfare, these are the basic situations to which the basic emotional drives correspond. This summary of the human condition adds nothing new to what is already familiar in greater detail to every psychoanalyst. The summary is intended as a reminder that the analytic situation itself and then the psychoanalytic occupation or task itself are bound to stimulate primitive and basic feeling in the analyst and analysand. Therefore, if the technique I propose for ensuring vivid appreciation of the emotional facts is as sound as I think it, these fundamental characteristics, love, hate, dread, are sharpened to a point where the participating pair may feel them to be almost unbearable. It is the price that has to be paid for the transformation of an activity that is about psychoanalysis into an activity that is psychoanalysis. The activity that is psychoanalysis evokes desires to know how the group is reacting to the pair relationship, 
This desire often masquerades as a wish for validation, popular repute, or approval. We thus return to the original problem, page 6F above, and the impulse to repudiate the approach I have adumbrated. The more reminiscence is indulged, the farther one is removed from a form of anxiety. One's historical identity is asserted. One was such and such and had certain recognized and remembered associates. One has done as well as or less well than, and so on and so on. It is doubtful whether these historical reminiscences would be corroborated by any of the characters who figure in one's own story, but they serve to deny the painfulness of the actual predicament that is the source of embarrassment. It is difficult, short of hallucination, to do anything about the present predicament. Reminiscence becomes a C2 category orgy to keep out the painful insights that follow on denial of sensuous experience. There is one form of denial of sensuous experience that has been a commonplace since Freud pointed out that analysis must be conducted in an atmosphere of deprivation. It has not been recognized that to achieve this is not enough to hope that analysis of the analyst and denial of the patient's wishes will serve. Anyone who considers it possible to achieve a suitable frame of mind by a few minutes of psychological tidying up before starting work cannot have grasped the nature of the discipline necessary to be an analyst or the nature of the insights that become available to the analyzed analyst if he brings artificial blindness to bear on his dark spots. It may well be that analysts who attempt the approach advocated in Chapter 4 on memory and desire will find that the institutions achieved by it, excuse me, that the intuitions achieved by it cause them to feel the need for further analysis. It is possible that the test of sensuous deprivation involved in eschewing memory and desire will bring to light a need for analysis that exists because the analytic experience has not been sufficient, or it may be that it indicates an additional demand that would not have occurred had the analyst remained content with the atmosphere of deprivation as it had been understood hitherto. The point is of moment, because if the abandonment of memory and desire brings a need for increased stamina, analysts may have to accept that advances in insight have to be matched by further analysis. Such a contingency imposes revision of training and maintenance of capacity for a psychoanalytic career. Though it is easy to envisage the need for further analysis, it is not certain that the further analysis must be similar to analysis as experienced and understood when we undergo our first analysis. The importance of the unconscious must not blind us to the fact that in addition to our unconscious memories and desires dealt with psychoanalytically, there is a problem to solve in the handling of our conscious, of our conscious memories and desires. What kind of psychoanalysis is required for the conscious? The psychotic is conscious of what we feel requires analysis. To approach this problem, it will be necessary to discuss memory and desire relative to loss of contact with reality. It has been supposed that the psychotic severs links with reality as a step to a sexual life in fantasy, but it is equally intended to establish freedom from sexual and allied stimulation. He appears to achieve a result resembling the neurotic patient's contact with the unconscious, as it is known in classical analysis. 
the psychotic seems to have the same relationship and attitude to what he has not been able to repress, and therefore what remains conscious that other patients have to the unconscious. The neurotic patient is concerned to show that neurotic elements in his behavior are rational, and he does his best to rationalize them. The psychotic can see that any action has a symbolic meaning and that the conjunction of the elements is not fortuitous, but has a meaning which is clear to him. This is possible provided he has severed all links with anything that shows the conjunction to be fortuitous and devoid of meaning, that is, in my terminology, unsaturated, a D-category element. The premature saturation involved in this has the paradoxical effect that all acts are symbolic, and yet the patient is incapable of symbol formation in the way open to the normal personality who can allow his elements to remain unsaturated. Contact with reality is unwelcome, because it tends not only to show that an element is unsaturated, but also to saturate the element in ways that are painful to the personality. As all his symbols have an obvious meaning, they can hardly be regarded as symbols at all, and nothing is left that can fulfill the function that symbols fill for the non-psychotic personality. How does this differ, differ from the state produced by the elimination of memory and desire? First, I am advocating only a partial severance with reality. Second, it is a deliberate conscious act of discipline. Third, it has a purpose that would appear to differ from the purpose of the psychotic maneuver. He wishes to destroy contact. I wish to establish it. Furthermore, he is primarily concerned with destruction of sensuous contact and its concomitant saturation, whereas I am anxious to diminish sensuous contact to bring psychic reality into focus. The psychotic fears and hates that result is an extension of reality. The domain of personality is so extensive that it cannot be investigated with thoroughness. The power of psychoanalysis demonstrates to any practicing psychoanalyst that adjectives like complete or full have no place in qualifying analysis. The more nearly thorough the investigation, the clearer it becomes that, however prolonged the psychoanalysis may be, it represents only the start of an investigation. It stimulates growth of the domain it investigates. This difficulty I mean to exploit in this way, if it is true that the proportion of the known to the unknown is so small at the end of analysis, it must be even smaller during analysis. Therefore, to spend time on what has been discovered is to concentrate on an irrelevance. What matters is the unknown, and on this the psychoanal psychoanalyst must focus his attention. Therefore, memory is a dwelling on the unimportant to the exclusion of the important. Similarly, desire is an intrusion, intrusion into the analyst's state of mind, which covers up, disguises, and blinds him to the point at issue. That aspect of O oh, that is currently presenting the unknown and unknowable though it is manifested to the two people present in its evolved character. This is the dark spot that must be illuminated by blindness. Memory and desire are illuminations that destroy the value of the analyst's capacity for observation as a leakage of light into a camera might destroy the value of the film being exposed.
To consider objections to the elimination of memory, it may seem impossible to have a link with a patient without remembering who he or she is. But such recognition does not depend on memory, nor does psychoanalysis. It depends on a background of an experience, the peculiarity of which I shall indicate by a series of approximations. We are familiar with the experience of remembering a dream. This must be contrasted with dreams that float into the mind unbidden and unsought and float away again as mysteriously. The emotional tone of this experience is not peculiar to the dream. Thoughts also come unbidden, sharply, distinctly, with what appears to be unforgettable clarity, and then disappear leaving no trace by which they can be recaptured. I wish to reserve the term memory for experience related to conscious attempts at recall. These are expressions of a fear that some element, uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, will obtrude. Dream-like memory is the memory of psychic reality and is the stuff of analysis. That which is related to a background of sensuous experience is not suitable to the phenomena of mental life, which are shapeless, untouchable, invisible, odorless, tasteless. These psychically real, in the sense of belonging to psychic reality, elements are what the analyst has to work with. It may appear that this contradicts the psychoanalytic theory of dreams unless it is remembered that the dream is the evolution of O, where O has evolved sufficiently to be represented by sensuous experience. The sensuous elements of a psychotic dream do not represent anything. They are a sensuous experience. Anyone who has made careful notes of what he considers to be the facts of a session must be familiar with the experience in which such notes will, on occasion, seem to be drained of all reality. They might be notes of dreams made to ensure that he will not forget them on waking. To me, it suggests that the experience of the session relates to material akin to the dream, not in the sense that dreams might be part of the preoccupation of the session, but that the dream and the psychoanalyst's working material both share dreamlike quality. The reality of the psychic experience, the O in the human personality, is such that the more the analyst is in contact, the more real it will be that part of it that he has been able to interpret. It will be clear to him that he is formulated excuse me, it will be clear to him that he is formulating only one aspect of a multidimensional experience. What will dwell in his mind will be the multidimensional experience. Once he has interpreted interpreted it, the facet that he has interpreted ceases to be of moment. The psychoanalyst reads his notes with a sense of emotional experience powerfully present in his mind but it is of an experience of the as yet unknown. It is against this powerful sense that he reads the notes of an event which ceased to be of an importance, which ceased to be of importance when it was formulated. The attempt to remember or record destroys the capacity for and interrupts the exercise of observation of the psychoanalytically significant events. Conversely, the sacrifice of memory and desire is conducive to the growth of dreamlike memory, which is a part of the experience of psychoanalytical reality. The transformation of the emotional experience into mental growth 
of Analyst and Analyzan contributes to the difficulty of both to remember what took place. Insofar as the experience contributes to growth, it ceases to be recognizable. If it does not become assimilated, it adds to those elements that are remembered and forgotten. Desire obstructs the transformation from knowing and understanding to being, K to O. The end.